The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Pat Gray. Somebody thought Two Tickets to Paradise by Eddie Money was, I've got two chickens to paralyze. <laughs> well, you don't want them running around if you're going to no, eat you them. No, you don't. You know, you just no, want it to be don't. easy. you got to paralyze them first, and then, you no, know, you know some it's convenient to go ahead and kill them and eat them. Some people don't like to just chop their heads off and right. let them run around for a while. Yeah, because like a chicken with your head cut off, that yeah. came from somewhere. Did you ever do that before? No. Pat Gray. Weekdays, noon to 3 Eastern. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Reaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Place that I believe you can find that voice, that patriotic American Muslim voice who holds no punches, who talks about those things that so few are willing to or perhaps have the courage to. And you know what? My right of free speech is not a right unless I exercise it. And I believe that part of my responsibility as an American and as an American Muslim is to exercise that free speech to repair all that besets the House of Islam and the policies in the West that have been too sheepish, too appeasing, too ignorant in approaching the real threat. And we reformers in the American Muslim community are ready to sit at the head of the spear as you hold it and help us launch into the house of the Islamists that have controlled the establishment of the Muslim world that controls our community. And here on this program, I hope you get that understanding, you get that education with me of the fronts, the lines that exist, the battlefronts that exist day to day in this battle for the soul of freedom, of liberty, of the West. And also for me as a Muslim, the battle for the soul of Islam that so far has been dominated, controlled by Islamists. And if you don't know what Islamism is, I hope week to week you'll begin to understand and get your head around what exactly political Islam is. Islamism, the fealty, the loyalty to the Islamic State. Well, uh, sadly, wouldn't be another week between our episodes without another act of terrorism, without another act of barbarism. And in the past, I've uh, always pointed out to you that, well, most of these have been done by homegrown radicals, and et cetera, and now as time goes on, we're starting to see more of these acts being committed by refugees. On September 15th, a bomb, partially, not fully, a bomb partially went off in the London Underground tube. And again, this 18-year-old who was arrested a few days later after September 15th was a known wolf, somebody who had been arrested only a week or two earlier at Parsons Green Station, at that same station where the bomb went off, the bucket of chemicals that was seen to have exploded. 29 people were injured many with uh, chemical burns to the face and other parts of their body. Some were injured in the stampede that ensued after they realized that an act of terror had happened. And then we began to look at the numbers. Truly, Homeland Security and in uh, London, the Home Office had... Obviously, many, many attacks that they've prevented. Now we've seen something like four attacks in the last six weeks. We've seen 12 attacks, prevented known attacks that have either occurred or been prevented in the last year with arrests. They'll tell you there are 20,000 individuals at risk for committing acts, 3,000 individuals part of known active counterterrorism cases with 500 cases openly Addressed And are they looking at ideology? Are they looking at simply violent extremism? And I had the pleasure of speaking to a group 
in Philadelphia, courtesy of the Muslim of the um, Middle East Forum this week, a NATO group. And I want to talk to you later in another segment about what NATO should be doing. It was a closed session, so I can't tell you about the details of the session, but I think it is apropos as it was announced that we had this session for you to understand what I believe, why it was so symbolic that we met on the day that the UN General Assembly was meeting, the day that President Trump gave, I believe, his best speech of his presidency yet. But it made much more sense to be speaking to NATO because that's where the future of the world is, the future of mankind, freedom, liberties in the hands of NATO, not in the hands of the UN. The UN has become a club of dictators run by a voting bloc of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, which is a theocratic neo-caliphate of Muslim radical governments, some run by viral Islamists, grassroots populist Islamists like the Khomeinists of Iran, some run by corporate Islamists like the Wahhabists of Saudi Arabia. Bottom line, they are not going to ever, ever, ever usher in reformation of Islam, which will require laboratories of freedom and liberty. But we'll get to that later. Another week, another act of terror. It cannot become the new normal. We are in a war footing. We are at war. We've seen just in the last month, Westminster, 12 arrested. Manchester, 23 arrested with so many injured after their exit from the Ariana Grande cancer concert. The London Bridge attack and now the London Tube, Parsons Green attack. This is why see something, say something is so key. And this is why if you want to narrow down, and I think... What, what don't you hear in other programs? At this program, I'm telling you, you want to take those 20,000 at risk? Why are they at risk? Well, the Home Office at the UK labeled them as individuals of interest because many have traveled to Syria and come back. Many have espoused jihadist ideology, militant ideology. Many have records of either imprisonment or have been on watch lists. So how can you narrow that down? Well, not only following their tracks into true violent jihadist networks like Al-Amak, news of ISIS or Dabak, reading of the, the, the sophisticated PDF that they put out of their magazine. No, not just direct links to ISIS. But the precursor ideologies need to be monitored. Are we monitoring precursor ideologies? No. Why? Because they're nonviolent. They're not part of the violent extremism understanding. Week to week, we find out that these people were already known. And sure enough, as Patrick Poole has always, always laid out, he shows again that this was not only a known wolf, but horrifically, this guy was no, part of the prevent de-radicalization program. The prevent program, which has been proven to be a failure and was dismantled for the most part, this guy was part of the program. If that doesn't tell you that it's failing, I don't know what does. 18-year-old who had come to the UK after leaving Iraq and Syria, had been under the care of foster parents who were 71, Penelope Jones and her husband Ronald, 88 years old. Again, hardly individuals I would guess with time to counter de-radicalize or assimilate this poor situation 
and obviously ISIS sent over an operative that then was operationalized upon coming to Western soil. And yet he became part of the PREVENT program. And what did it do? Nothing. He was then arrested two weeks prior for some type of activity that they thought was uh, uh, questionable and he was released. And I'm sure there's a number of these. If you ask them why wasn't he detained, what happened, they'll say, oh, we have hundreds of cases like this. We can't illegally detain all of them. Well, I'm glad they're not. We don't want to lose our freedom. We don't want to change what our society is. But yet, are they looking at precursor ideologies? The extent of the known wolf problem, as Patrick Poole says, has included 12 confirmed attacks and so many, so many attacks that have been prevented. And however, each one that gets through their net, that is like Swiss cheese, because they're following simply the symptoms of violence and terrorism and not the ideology and the precursors. So don't let this become the new normal. Let's learn more from, just like the Barcelona attacks you and I talked about a few weeks ago. The imam had been in prison. What was he preaching after he got out? Do we know? Why wasn't he being exposed by the local Muslim communities? So many jihadists are teeming, as Quilliam Foundation has talked about, in Barcelona and in Spain. There should be investments not only in the behind-the-scenes legal monitoring of high-risk individuals, but there should be a public radioactivity put upon those who are preaching an imam who has a mosque that isn't on the radar of public anti-terror. I mean, right now, so many of our think tanks are publicly exposing ideology of of socialism, communism, other things that we monitor day-to-day in our domestic politics. Where are the counter-Islamist programs domestically to expose the ideologies from every mosque, from every Islamic institution? Nowhere. And those of us that are doing this work have hardly, hardly the resources to do it. We should be going publicly, taping sermons and posting them in every mosque. Posting them transcribing them, translating them, letting the world know what's being said. And I guarantee you, as you make, it doesn't have to be illegal. Mosques are open. They're not private facilities. They're open. They're supposed to be open to anyone to come and learn about Islam. And since they have this evangelical mantra, right, that they want people to learn about and do da'wah, how can you do da'wah if you shut mosques to non-Muslims? I don't think they do that. But even Muslims that would go in, you should have resources to engage Muslims who want to expose positively and negatively. They think the sermons are so great that I'm sure they'd want it posted. Nothing wrong with that. What about the Islamic organizations? What are they doing? What are they teaching? What's going on in their emails? What's going on in their newsletters? Do we know? So week to week when we see these attacks continuing to increase in a staccato pattern, We still haven't changed our cycle. We're still before the denial. We're still talking about whether to call it Islamic extremism. Are you kidding? It's not only Islamist. We need to go beyond and start countering the Islamism. And it's not only countering. What are we for? And I've talked to you so many times about that on this podcast. You cannot counter that unless you spend 10% of your time on countering and 90% of your time advancing an idea of what these kids should be for. For liberty, for freedom, for British nationalism, for American nationalism. And that nationalism is a national identity that protects their freedoms to be Muslim. That's the key to that identity for it to work. Not a fascist nativism, but a natural nationalism that is born out of a constitutional sense of protecting freedom their own freedom and the freedom of every other equal individual in that country. Another week, another attack. So much more to talk to you. We had an unbelievable speech from President Trump. You know, I call him as I see him. When we come back, let's talk about his speech to the U.N. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. (laughs) 
You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something, and progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. This is Dr. Zudi Jesser. Dr. Zudi Jasser, welcome back to another segment of Reform This. We have so much to talk about this week, and, you know, I, I think probably the most significant event this week was President Trump's address to the U.N. General Assembly. And, you know, as some of you know, I've uh, been critical of uh, some of the uh, broken promises uh, by President Trump of addressing Islamic radicalism, of convening his Commission on Radical Islam, and uh, some of the vacillation in the position towards a lot of the establishment folks that seem, especially from the military, that seem to have populated the White House. And I think for military missions, they're the best. General Kelly, General Mattis, uh, McMaster are, are, are patriots who, when given a military mission, will succeed. And I'd ask for nobody better. But when given an ideological mission to promote freedom and liberty, to destroy Islamism and its source and its ideology and work with our allies on the ground against the barbarians that are spreading Islamism from these governments, they're not the best. They would uh, likely, in order to prevent military conflict, sacrifice our own ideals. And to hear the president's speech this week, I have to tell you, I had to read it twice in order to ensure that I didn't miss something. It was fantastic. He connected the dots. He didn't just mention Islamic once or twice as far as the root cause, because as I told you, it goes beyond simply naming the problem as Islamic radicalism, because then what happens? But he connected the dots. He not only said that he was, gonna, he was likely uh, that the Iran deal was an embarrassment, he not only said that, that it was one of the worst deals ever signed in history, but he connected why Iran is so evil. The dots of its imperial aspirations in the region. The fact that it uses its money to spread anarchy and chaos and take over other regimes and other people's governments. That it, he linked it to Hezbollah, to the funding of chemical attacks, to the Assad regime and its genocide against the Syrian people and its, its distaste and disgust towards sovereignty of states like Syria and that they're all connected. That connection in the context of a bad nuclear deal was just amazing to hear. He talked about that the entire world, quote, understands that the good people of Iran want change, and other than the vast military power of the United States, that Iran's people are what their leaders fear the most. He said that the Marshall Plan was built on the noble idea that the whole world is safer when nations are strong, independent, and free. If the righteous many do not confront the wicked few, talking about Syria, North Korea, Iran, then evil will triumph. When decent people and nations become bystanders to history, bystanders to history, the forces of destruction only gather power and strength. So here is the vision of a president, contrary to what we heard in the campaign, that really fails that America's power and strength has a role in protecting those who share our vision. When President Trump in this speech spoke to the Iranian people, he didn't tell them in a, in a patronizing way as President Obama did in the ridiculous videos he would send on the uh, Nehru's annual holiday where President Obama was saying, oh, your government with the billions we're sending back will use it to improve your economy and you'll see prosperity I was pulling my hair out at the time, 2009 and 2010, as they were throwing at the altar of the Iran deal every kind of lie known. 
Our, our president turned into propaganda for the Iranian regime on their videos. But President Trump made up for that this week. He showed to the Iranian people and the revolutionaries and the Green Revolution that we understand that the best anti-nuclear Iran program is not only a sanctions regime and not only isolation, which is a short-term fix, but the long-term fix is regime change. I saw peace through strength in his speech. And you know he hit all the right notes when it comes to Iran. Because I thought one of the most fascinating things this week was the Iranian translator who was mocked, mocked for softballing the UN speech. So here, listen, you've got to listen to this. He said, when asked about it, Nima Shistaz, a translator for the state Iranian IRIB, said he had decided in the heat of the moment to spare his Persian-speaking viewers from the verbal attacks by the U.S. president. He said, I don't think it would be nice for me to speak on national TV against my own country, he later told Iranian television. So when President Trump said, Iran is depleted, is a depleted rogue state whose chief exports are violence, bloodshed, and chaos, his translation was, Iran speaks of destroying Israel. <laughs> he translated our president talking about their regime spreading chaos around the world to criticism of Israel. Wow, what kind of training do these translators have to on the cuff shift everything to anti-Semitic mantras? And then President Trump said, other than the vast military power of the United States, Iran's people are what their leaders fear of the most, which was translated for the viewers. The U.S. army is a very strong army, and the Iranian nation is a very strong nation. <laughs> wow, that's pretty facile translation. You know, I was on the U.S. Commission on Religious Freedom, and I have to tell you, one of the weapons we do not understand enough is the power of translation. I can t Reforming Islam, the core to reforming Islam, I believe, is a brand new translation. Not changing the Quran, but translating and interpreting it into the 21st century. So real-time translation of what groups, leaders say in Arabic versus what they say in English the same person will say one thing in a certain tone and turn around and say they're saying the same thing in another language, but it will be lie and deception of what they're actually saying. This is why we tell our kids it's so important for them to understand multiple languages. Later it said, this is what causes the regime to restrict internet access, tear down satellite dishes, shoot unarmed student protesters, and imprison political reformers. That's what the president said. It was translated as, many incidents happen in Iran which are unacceptable to us. Oh my God. So summary, making things more succinct, took away details that would be offensive. And the translator, when asked said, I don't want to be critical of the government on and say unfair things about our government on our own media. He literally said that. On Twitter, it was amazing. Things that came out, it said, are you paid to translate or translate whatever you see fit? Now, even the regime apologists are so deluded, they said, you should have translated Trump's nonsense so that people could better judge this stupid person. Our own media, just to jump for a second to North Korea, our own media completely berated President Trump for saying he would destroy North Korea if they continued to threaten and get closer and closer to using nuclear weapons. That somehow destroying North Korea was a threat to 25 million people. Certainly war is not something any president takes lightly. But if you look back, Google it. March or September 2016, President Obama used the exact same language saying to 
Kim Jong-un that he would destroy North Korea if they even got close to using uh, and, and, and came close to using a nuclear weapon and threatened it. This translator in Iran said nobody would have translated what President Trump said. That's not what we do. We don't translate lies, etc., etc. So I have to tell you, you know you're hitting the right notes when their regime is in real time translating it fake in deceptive ways. So I have to tell you, this is what we need to do to the UN. This is how you wake up those who truly believe in freedom and liberty. My only disappointment, if there is one, he didn't mention Burma. Aung San Suu Kyi is a major, major disappointment. So long lauded by the UN, protected by the UN as a, as a defender of freedom, liberty, of political activism and reform. And still to this day, some of the people I respect, the American Enterprise Institute put out an unbelievably apologetic piece by Clay Fuller. I don't know who that is. Somebody who ended up uh, going ballistic on me in Twitter, uh, almost neurotic, because I criticized his piece. Defended her, saying that she has no choice, she's not in a position to run the junta, and that she's making a calculated decision that over time will be reformed, yada, yada. Noah Feldman at Commentary Magazine got it much more correct, and I applaud him for his consistency. Moral Americans, moral Americans who are not uh, of fealty to dictators, will not accept, especially from a dissident who made her name out of fighting for freedom and liberty, will not accept apologetics, especially when they get into power. She should have resigned, she should cede, whatever it is. The Rohingya that are now being uh, slaughtered, that are being pushed again in the tens of thousands, if not more, out into foreign lands. And, and ethnic cleansing continues in Burma and Myanmar, whatever you want to call it. I believe it's Burma. But at the end of the day, there is a crime against humanity happening there, and Aung San Suu Kyi is continuing to sit down and apologize for her government. She wouldn't even go to her meeting that had been scheduled at the UN. So yes, that was my only disappointment, was that President Trump hadn't mentioned that. But he hit all the right notes on the music he he paid attention to. I hope it translates into policy. I hope now we see a regional doctrine evolve that includes Syria, that includes all those dots he connected as we begin to push the UN into doing the right thing. They will have to be pushed. We now need to follow through on what President Trump did say during the campaign, which was that the funding of the UN is absurd. We need to start to push them where it hurts, that if they're going to use our money, that they're going to do it to advance ideas of freedom and liberty and human rights, universal human rights. I applaud President Trump on his speech. When we come back, the enforcement arm of the UN for human rights is NATO. Make no mistake. Other countries will not do that. Or if they do, they do it to save face. Let's talk about NATO when we come back at the next segment. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Reaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This. Thank you for sticking with me. And uh, we're talking about the UN speech about uh, President Trump's doctrine, maybe starting to congeal. Maybe we're starting to understand what a muscular approach to American interests but also the sound advocacy for values that we have in the West that they obviously do not have under theocracies, dictatorships, and autocracies. This past week, I had the honor of participating in a closed session with uh, the uh, NATO Parliamentary Assembly sponsored by the Middle East Forum and uh, led by uh, Daniel Pipes. Uh, we had a closed session 
looking at uh, some of the issues of uh, regional instability, stability outlook uh, on the Middle East, strategy, uh, country to country, region to region, and then domestically regarding terror and counterterrorism measures. There's an event that uh, that happened towards the end of the meeting, uh, which was the only part of the meeting that was open, uh, that uh, Daniel, uh, Dr. Pipes describes in National Review uh, uh, in a very, uh, very descriptive and, and, and clear, direct way, in which he says that he taught NATO to stand up to a dictator. And it was fascinating that, uh, you know, one of the big issues uh, for NATO is the role of Turkey. Uh, should they be in? Should they be out? Uh, what, are they Islamist? Are they not? Uh, these are questions that many of us that uh, know what's going on or, or are knowledgeable uh, about the rising theocracy of the Erdogan cult in Turkey, the uh, dysfunction that has become more and more uh, theocratic with more journalists imprisoned in the past few years than ever in history in Turkey with torture and limitation of free speech, on and on. So there's a bit of an anathema there about whether they should be part of NATO and where else uh, better than in Philadelphia, as uh, Dr. Pipes said, near the uh, Independence Hall to discuss these issues in the open. And one of the issues he talks about and the reason why he clearly did teach NATO how to stand up to a dictator is that uh, when he describes here, and, and you know, hats off to the Middle East Forum uh, for doing this, uh, but um, they had brought together a bunch of thinkers uh, on these issues, uh, including myself and a number of Muslim reformers, Usama Hassan from Quilliam Foundation in London, Zainab el Suwaj, and we discussed issues of radicalization, counter-radicalization, counter-Islamism, and talked about the threat uh, of Islamism. And, uh, you know, they, the Turks did not uh, uh, flinch. Now, they obviously uh, uh, defended uh, their positions on a few things, and uh, we'll leave uh, uh, the details uh, unsaid here since those were, closed, those were closed sessions. But what was amazing is uh, Middle East Forum had, had initially on the list, as Dr. Pipes mentioned, Emre Selik, the president of the Rumi Forum, a Gulenist intellectual group, which is a uh, Islamist outfit, but obviously is currently the close relationship they had with the AKP has soured over the past few years. And now Erdogan's thugs, Erdogan's representatives, consider them to be terrorists. So they asked that he be removed from the program. Dr. Pipes lays out why he initially agreed, but then at the close of the program, asked him to come on stage to give a few remarks. Well, the NATO... Parliamentary Assembly representatives of Erdogan and Ankara uh, then started yelling, calling the guy a terrorist, and stormed out of the room. Uh, the uh, British head of the delegation uh, tried to close the meeting. Dr. Pipes appropriately said, this is the United States of America. We allow diversity of opinion, even within Islamist movements. Uh, we do not shut speech down. And he allowed... Mr. Selleck to speak. Now, the British also left, and some parliamentarians did leave, unfortunately. But I think Dr. Pipe's closing words were very apropos, in which he said, he said, I proffer my apology to the NATO Parliamentary Assembly for pulling the trick, but I stand by the deception. It was impossible for us and he's talking about the Middle East Forum, to ignore NATO's founding principle to safeguard the freedom of its peoples. It was equally impossible to ask the Forum, especially as it met within sight of Independence Hall and the Liberty Bell, to acquiesce to the diktat of a foreign tyrant. Indeed, despite the walkout, I hope that the NATO Parliamentary Assembly delegates secretly admire our taking a stand against tyranny and draw inspiration from this small act of defiance. Perhaps they will learn to stand up to Erdogan's bullying, precisely what they did not do in this instance. And I think it's a very, very apt metaphor of how weak what we believe NATO is supposed to be, which is the defenders of freedom and liberty, how weak NATO has become. 
that even in Philadelphia, it needs an American think tank of impeccable ideological stature to stand up and teach them how not to acquiesce to the dictates of theocracies that demand that somehow their will will be abided by because of the the size of their economy, the size of their army, and the sense that keep your enemies close, your friends close and your enemies closer, or whatever useless phrase or cliche you want to use. But at the end of the day, it's a compromise of British, of French, of German, of American, of NATO values. And I think there was a lesson learned. And, and the amazing thing, and again, to their credit, Many of us anti-Islamists have been very critical of the Gulenists and their deception and secretive nature of their organization. But you fix that by shedding light on it, by discussing, by bringing them into debate. They raise many good points about the problems of the Erdogan movement and how cultish their movement also is. So if there's going to be other pathways in Turkey, it's going to have to come from debate, from public discussion and discourse, not from shutting down free speech. So in this segment, I think I learned from Dr. Pipes, from many of the scholars there that day, and I tried to impart my understanding of what we need to do in the West to fight for freedom and liberty is that we can only defeat Islamism, the identity movement of Islamic State or Harikat Islamiyah, the movements of Islamic party movements, political movements, not only by countering and proving their ideas to be a failure, but by proving that our ideas are better, that freedom and liberty are the solution to mankind, that are the last best hope for mankind, that is the city on a hill. It's not only America. I believe it is all free nations that will have that mandate, that mandate to protect and preserve the principles that we share as liberal nations. And unfortunately... NATO has abrogated that, that somehow it's only going to be invoked in a direct attack. Yes, Article 5 is invoked under attack when, when, when an attack on one is an attack on all. But what about the defense and advancement of liberty? We had the Cold War in which NATO came together against communism. Turkey did too. That's one of the reasons Turkey is part of NATO, is it was part of the anti-communist, anti-Soviet axis. But... In the war against Islamism, this is not going to be won militarily. And it is not going to be won by simply isolating ourselves and letting the narrative of the Islamists play out, which says that we are the root of all evil, that everything in the, in the post-colonial era is to, is to blame on colonialists, etc., etc. There are many of our families from Syria, Egypt, and elsewhere that will tell you that the as bad as colonialism might have been, the only source of infusion of ideas of parliamentary democracy came from those colonialists. That internally there was no laboratory for modernization and democratization and liberalization, that an only way to do that was through revolutions. And for the first time now, NATO's role is becoming extremely important because the Arab awakening of 2011 started to say that these regimes were ripe for the plucking and the people were going to be able to begin to have some form of self-determination. And as the Arab people, the Muslim people, start to develop, and the mother minorities develop self-determination that allows the protection of universal human rights for every individual, how will civil society grow? And I can tell you, the UN is not going to solve that problem. The UN is too busy coddling to dictators and falsely demonizing Israel. That's what they do. They don't give two you-know-whats about protecting, truly protecting universal human rights 
and advancing the ideas of freedom and liberty, which I believe are at the core of universal human rights that Eleanor Roosevelt and so many others in the foundations of the UN thought it was supposed to be doing. So that leaves a huge vacuum. If NATO doesn't fill that for the advocacy and protection of the ideas of freedom and liberty, the ideas of the secular liberal nation-state identity, if it doesn't protect that, which is, I think, what Brexit was partly about, it will wither on the vine and the days of our democracy will be numbered because ultimately the vacuums that will be created by dictatorships that fail will be filled by more regional hegemonic powers such as Iran, Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, on and on. That as these powers weaken, others will fill. And the only way to prevent larger autocracies from filling the gaps of smaller ones is by advancing the need and the the protection of platforms for those who want to be free. I've said this on this program before. Natan Sharansky said he knew he would be free. Said he knew he'd be free when he heard Ronald Reagan call them the evil empire. That when you call a spade a spade, the world will begin to retract from embracing it. NATO can no longer embrace evil. NATO needs to identify the new evil empire of today as the OIC, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, this neo-caliphate that extends from Algeria and Sudan and Egypt and Saudi Arabia and Iran and Pakistan, all these Islamic republics are Islamist and are evangelical and that their missionary work is to spread the ideas of Islamism and ultimately through their caliphism create a power structure that relies on the Islamist system at the expense and the only threat to them, why they want us to be isolationist, why they allow terrorism to happen and fund it and fuel it through Hezbollah or ISIS and Al-Qaeda is because they want to separate Muslims out of society in the West and they want to weaken the West and make it more isolationist so that the ideas of freedom are not pushed forward. That is what NATO should be opposing and we should be advancing. Most of our bandwidth should be spent on uniting together to figure out what it means to be secular, liberal, democratic nation states so that we can redefine what we are as Americans, Brits, Canadians, French, and Germans, and then help the new nascent countries of Egypt, Tunisia, Yemen, Libya, Syria, begin to redefine what it means to be Syrian, Egyptian, Tunisian. This is, this is what NATO needs to be about. It needs to be about advancing its own ideas. We need to stop apologizing for who we are in the West. We need to no longer accept the narrative from the Islamists that somehow we are responsible for all the problems in the world. We can't advance the ideas that we represent if we're also apologetic at the same time. Yes, there have been some errors. Yes, there have been some problems. But the apologetics need to stop. Most of the bandwidth need to be about the sanctity of freedom and liberty for every individual around the planet. And free countries need to lead that. Democracy is a mess. Yes, it's messy. But it's the best mess in the planet. Organization, stability, quiet is often the problem in these countries. My family will tell you in Syria, the revolution now, as much as it's hell and genocide is happening, they're alive. They're alive. They were dead beforehand. It was a prison. So disruption can be good. NATO needs to be a part of disruption. Disruption, disruption. This is Zudi Jasser. We'll be right back. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. 
Matt Walsh. With liberalism, isn't that they ostracize certain viewpoints? It's that they ostracize the wrong viewpoints. Or I should say the right viewpoints. They're, they are wrong in how they ostracize. The problem is not that they're ostracizing. The problem isn't that they're shaming. The problem isn't even that they're shouting down, to be honest with you. The problem is that they're shouting down, ostracizing, and shaming the truth. That's the problem. Matt Walsh. Available on demand anytime at theblaze.com slash radio. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser, the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This. In our last segment this week, I want to close on a couple subjects. One that's near and dear to my heart is we've talked about the Arab world. We've talked about reform, etc. What about Burma, now known as Myanmar? There was a character there who I got to meet, actually, and when I was in the U.S. Commission on Religious Freedom, one of the countries we paid close attention to because of the treatment specifically of the Rohingya Muslims. And what at the time were obvious war crimes being committed against them, uh, ethnic cleansing by pushing them out, uh, displacement in the tens to hundreds of thousands uh, into uh, surrounding areas. And we... We're just appalled at what the Burmese government was doing or not doing and allowing some of the more militant Buddhist organizations and, and parts of the military, the government, to wreak havoc on them, all in the name of what they call an Islamist threat in the area. I went and actually was subjected to some of the propaganda from the government there. They hand out pamphlets about uh, evil Muslims and and uh, the fascist nature of their threat and how they have no choice but to defend themselves and defend their nation state and obviously as any of you know who follow me I'm I'm the first to be critical of the Islamist movement but I also have have repeatedly said that if you want to fuel radical Islam look at what the Saudis did in creating Al Qaeda look at what. Uh, the secular dictators have done in Syria, Iraq, or elsewhere, that ultimately you push it underground and you create toxic atmospheres like the Russians did in Chechnya or elsewhere, it fuels like wildfire the radicalization of those groups. Even having said that, on the global stage, jihadists love to wreak havoc far away from the land that they're most stressed about. So why are the Rohingyas and the Burmese that have left and escaped Burma and then gone on to commit acts of uh, atrocious barbarian uh, uh, terrorism like ISIS or some of the Arab militant Islamists have. They're hard to find. I'm not saying they don't exist. But they're hard to find. Now, ISIS's uh, entanglement is against Assad, the Muslim Brotherhood and and uh, 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 the Al-Qaeda's of Saudi Arabia is against Saudi Arabia government, against the Egyptian military government. Why would they go to Europe and the West? So many of the radical Islamic uh, clerics do blame the West for what's happening in Burma, for their inaction, for their appeasement and so-called lip service. So to say that somehow Burma is different because of the history, etc., Maybe there's a lack of colonial era there, but at the end of the day, culturally, the Burmese Muslims, the Rohingya, do not have an internal indoctrination in a militant form of Islam. For the most part, there are certainly factions now that are becoming radicalized, especially since these atrocities have now gone on for uh, decades. But... Aung San Suu Kyi, who at the time I now feel naive, I, I took pictures with her, I thought, wow, this is the, the hero of democratization, the woman who stood against the junta, the military dictatorship of uh, 60-some years of the single party that ran Burma, now Myanmar. Noah Rothman in the Commentary Magazine has a fantastic piece in which he ends by saying, 
Aung San Suu Kyi is a crushing disappointment. And he said maybe the pressures and political realities of running a democratizing state alongside a tenacious junta have been underappreciated, both by Suu Kyi and her detractors. Perhaps. Perhaps the facts on the ground tie her hands, and she must meekly defend the actions of her military as it commits atrocities against oppressed minorities. Perhaps. But either way, she's a crushing disappointment. And he reminds us of the Congressional Gold Medal that President Bush in 2008 gave her as a fitting tribute to a courageous woman who speaks for freedom for all the people of Burma. President Bush said all the people of Burma and who speak in such a way that she's powerful voice in contrast to the junta that currently rules the country. 2011, President, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Secretary Clinton traveled to Burma where she appeared beside Suu Kyi. She loved to use the Burmese as an example of a resolving democracy towards liberalism, which when I was there, as much as they said, yes, there was some growth and simply having her placed into power was a demonstration of a significant, almost tectonic shift that was happening. Absolutely. But the facts on the ground were not democratization. The facts on the ground were the military junta was still in control. In her hard choices, she wrote, while the Arab... This is for Secretary Clinton. While the Arab Spring was losing its luster in the Middle East, Burma was giving the world new hope that it is indeed possible to transition peacefully from dictatorship to democracy. Ha! Hardly. And Aung San Suu Kyi rode the coattails of her decades. She got a Nobel Peace Prize in 1991. So for almost 30 years, we've been hearing the unending stories of how much a leader and fantastic she is and Bishop Desmond Tutu came out very critical recently saying that she has failed the world. And he is somebody who can speak about what can happen after having served time under dictatorship to come out from that and then live up to your principles. And so many others who fought for freedom for decades didn't come out and then turn and give apologetics and ex- excuses. She was supposed to meet with the UN last week, and Aung San Suu Kyi decided not to. And for those of you who follow me on Twitter, on social media, at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I Jasser, I had a bizarre interaction with a Clay Fuller from the American Enterprise Institute, a institute that I thought was all about advancing liberty and freedom around the world, and this research scholar wrote a piece about how Aung San Suu Kyi's being misunderstood, that we need to give her some time, that her hands are tied, that she's working in a system that does not allow quick change, and that she is still the best asset for democracy, and that people are being hypercritical and not understanding the situation she lives in. So I went to Twitter, social media, engaged Mr. Fuller on how disappointed I am and and disappointed in AEI that it would give this woman who's supposed to be an icon of peace a pass on dictatorships, on the principles that we are supposed to defend and that we cannot apologize for them and give them an excuse, that those excuses are no different than the ones we give the Saudis or the Egyptians or other dictators. Perhaps he does that with them too. And then he responds with a link to a Brookings Institute piece about how tied her hands are saying all the same things. And I said, you're giving me a Brookings piece? Brookings is the one that's funded by the Saudis and the Qataris and has especially Qatar's relationship with them. Brookings was outed by the New York Times as one of the worst institutes of foreign funding from dictatorships. So sure, they're going to be apologists. I never thought AEI would have a scholar that was an apologist for dictatorships. Hats off to Noah Rothman for his piece and commentary and I hope other conservative writers can take more criticism than Mr. Clay Fuller can. Last, I want to leave you on a little lighter note. Hillary Clinton's been driving us nuts and getting nauseated with her tours of her 
memoirs of what happened in the elections, or what she calls it, what happened, as if we care. Sort of like everybody's been saying on Twitter and elsewhere, go away, please, please just go away. But, you know, the thing that stood out for me, here's a woman who was Secretary of State from 2009 to 2013. Key, key years. Probably the four most important years of Delta change that could have been happening if we had shifted. History will show, God is my witness, history will show that if there are four years in mankind in which the free world, had it been hypervigilant to advance the ideas of, of, of liberty and freedom and protect those who share our values in Tunisia, in Egypt, in Turkey, in Iran, in Yemen, elsewhere, and had a strategy. It wouldn't have been straight now, but the trajectory would have been different. There was no muscular liberalism. There was no defense of freedom. Hillary Clinton went asleep as the Green Revolution happened at the altar of the nuclear plan deal with Iran. So the Green Revolution died in 2009. Hillary Clinton abrogated the Islamic to the Islamic leadership. The leadership of the revolution, which was started as an economic revolution in Egypt and Libya, Tunisia and Syria, and ultimately was hijacked and taken over by the Islamists because the minorities who worked with the labor groups that were fighting for economic freedom in Egypt, Tunisia, and Syria. Now, each one had its own narratives that we could get into. But at the end of the day, had we had a strategy to at least, not militarily, these were indigenous revolutions that did not need our military help, but at least, number one, maintain civil sovereignty for their civil war or their revolutions, to prevent foreign interference, especially in Syria for the Russians and Iranians, and from Saudi Arabia and Iran and Yemen, and to maintain the principles of universal human rights and to help initially those groups that needed protection and platforms for free speech and even armamentation. We may have a different Middle East today, maybe more may chaotic, more chaotic, and maybe more kinetic, but at least we wouldn't have seen the disasters to the level that we see it now, and 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 have been forced to go now where we're going, which is towards a more entrenched twentieth century empowerment of dictatorships and our Game of Thrones approach of picking the lesser of evils of dictators so that the Russians don't spread even more beyond Syria, or the Iranians don't create a sense of wanting to create their own type of caliphate, even though they don't believe in a Sunni-type caliphate, but hegemonic Shia states control. But no, they lost that opportunity. So, having said that, what's Hillary talking about this week? Oh, she's talking about how, sort of in a, in a jocular way, how her experience with Putin was misogynistic and he treated her, uh, spread his legs and man-spreading his legs. And she did multiple programs from Stephen Colbert to NBC and else laughing about his man-spreading. This is what the American public is being exposed to. Hillary Clinton talking about Putin's flirtations and his grotesque vile personal interactions, which we all know, former KGB head is the scum of humanity. Okay, this is what I'm going to be subjected to listening to from a person who sat around while Putin imperialized Syria more than he had already and now basically made her look to a fool. And Lavrov, his foreign secretary, made her look as a complete fool repeatedly. And we're listening to Hillary Clinton Whoa, about how she stood up to Putin's manspreading. I am impressed. Yeah, enough with Hillary Clinton. We need to start writing a book about 
Hillary Clinton, the opportunities missed as Secretary of State. 2009, 2013 were huge missed opportunities. For many years, we might be talking on this program about all the things that could have, should have been done. Nothing's perfect. Foreign policy should not be an all or none game. We right now give some of the most powerful weapons in the world to one of the most ideological adverse regimes on the planet, Saudi Arabia. So to tell me we're worried about giving, yes, most of the guns and stuff we give to help people defend themselves that share our values and revolutions should never be ultimately getting the wrong hands. But if some do, this is part of the calculus of at least weighing in on a battle where Russia and Iran are definitely weighing in with soldiers, might, and treasure on the other side. And as President Trump said at the UN this week, they have been dumping the billions we handed back to them into that war. And to say that we shouldn't balance that out with helping those who really share our values, at least some, the few that exist, why not? It's absurd. Thank you for being with me this week. I look forward to seeing you next week. God bless you and God bless America. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.